Welcome to the Gresham's Leadership Podcast. My name is Dr. Adam Richardson, and I will be your host. In this episode, we turn our attention to the military, as I interview an old university friend, Andrew Watson, who spent a number of years in the British Army. I caught up with Andrew a couple of weeks ago, and here's what we had to say. Okay, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Andy Watson to the Leadership Podcast. Welcome, Andrew. Adam, it's great to be here. Really excited to chat. Perfect. So, so we just want to sort of assume no knowledge, really, and just start from the start. We'll try and follow things reasonably chronologically, just so it's easy to follow. So, so Andy, what was it that inspired you initially to join the Army? Good question. That's, I mean, I came from a family who had no military background, apart from my grandfather served in the Second World War, but none of my parents generation served and I didn't have any mates who'd been in the army or knew anything about it and so it was a it was a fairly innocuous meeting of some some people who had been in the army as a teenager that sort of planted a seed of that would be a thing that you could do but at uni obviously we were at Nottingham Uni together playing hockey enjoying all of that and um, coming to the end of uni I didn't know what to do um, and I'd thought about a couple of different things. I ended up working in the charity sector for a couple of years. But the idea of possibly going into the army um, was there. And I think it was the attraction of the challenge, the adventure, some the opportunities to meet lots of people, to be outdoors, to do something physical and something exciting. And, and so I pretty much from almost no knowledge at all, just applied, went along, visited a local unit, and then uh, they, I went through the sort of Sandhurst selection process and, and then it landed at, in Sandhurst with, with basically no prior knowledge of prior what I was knowledge, getting myself no, no in. CCF, no, no background nothing, in it, so. No, no, nothing at uni, no OC, OTC or which officer training corps or no, no TA, nothing, no cadets, mm-hmm. no, zero. And so, so a lot of people would have heard of Sandhurst and maybe no more than others, but just for the un- uninitiated, so what exactly is Sandhurst? Sandhurst, it's the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. It's the Army's leadership uh, training place. And effectively, you take, there are two points of entry for the Army, either as a, as a soldier or as an officer. If you join as an officer, you go to Sandhurst, you spend a year there learning all about the army being effectively indoctrinated into the army and learning about leadership and developing your leadership. Um, uh, yeah, that's what Sandhurst is. Okay. And, and I guess it's, you know, people have probably heard different things about it. Like what, I mean, in terms of the actual leadership there, like what, what were the main themes or like what was it resonated with you that you took away from it? If you can remember. Well, it is a fast and furious year. Um, and especially the first term, three terms, the first term, is you know unbelievably um intense you are sort of up all the time on the go but it's it you know you're meeting people you're right in the thick of it kind of learning all about the military and particularly as someone who didn't have any army background that was that was that was a challenging thing but the thing that comes through right from day one at sandhurst is its motto is serve to lead serve to lead um and that principle it's a christian obviously a christian principle um, was something that having worked in the charity sector for a Christian organization and being a Christian was something that resonated well with me in terms of 
basically putting other people first, thinking of um, others for yourself. Um, and uh, that principle sort of applied to the military is, is you know, it, in my experience, it works really, really, well, really well. And it's what Santos bases its sort of leadership theory on. Okay. And so, and so, you, so it's a year at Sandhurst and you survived. Survived, got through indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so then do you like, are you kind of good to go or do you have lots more training before you're posted somewhere? How does it work? Typically officers leaving Sandhurst, you commission as a second lieutenant um, into whichever cap badge or corps or regiment you join. Um, and you go on a young officer's training course, normally for three months, where you learn some more specialist knowledge, whatever you're called, whether you're an engineer or an infantier or logistician, which is what I joined, I joined the RLC, Royal Logistic Corps. So you go to learn, in my case, about trucks and driving and supply chains and stuff like that as, as to how the military actually gets things from A to B. And you learn some, what detail you can in three months, and then you, at that point, are launched into your unit where you take over your troop of, say, 30 to 40 guys. Um, and, and that's it. You know, and the, and you, and it, one of the great things about the Army is you, you are given a lot of opportunity very early on in your career. And you're sort of, you are in at the deep end. Um, now, you're given help. There are people there to lean on, people to learn from, people to get advice from. But you you do have um, a huge amount of opportunity um, right from the start, and that was what happened to me, uh, which I think was actually really really helpful for my career. Um, I deployed in operations within a couple of weeks of finishing my young officers course. I went straight out to Afghanistan, and that was um, it was in two thousand and seven, and that was you know uh, a hugely um, exciting and daunting challenge but one that sort of served me well for the rest of my career okay so you're i mean you're basically you've done sanders you do these this training and then you're just you're straight out there to afghanistan like what what was your first role there i mean what were you doing yeah well typically you you would normally before deploying on operations you would do sort of what used to be called pre-deployment training that could be up to a year of or or more of exercises and upskilling and trying out your role and doing things in your organization in the way that you'll break down when you deploy. Um, that would be normal. What happened to me was I was effectively just thrown in because there was a shortage of young officers in that particular um, sort of turn of the handle. And um, I deployed initially with what was called the operational mentoring and liaison team, uh, which was a, uh, it was mentoring the Afghan national army, which at that time was quite, fledgling and was uh the, the british army were in a sort of mentoring role trying to nurture and grow that their capacity and their skill um i was attached to a an infantry battle group and mentoring some of the logistic afghan soldiers within their unit which was called a kandak and um it, which was itself you know a right in the deep end very early on um, and really fascinating. And so I spent three months, three or three and a half months with that operational and mentoring liaison team, working predominantly with one Afghan officer who was in charge of a company of about 120 Afghan soldiers. 
Um, and I was as a brand new second lieutenant with, you know, obviously no military experience apart from Santos and my young officer training. Um, so it was, it was a steep learning curve and um, one that I actually got stuck into and relished and enjoyed. Um, yeah, lots of lots of good stuff came came out of it for me. Yeah, personally. I mean, what what did you have to offer the Afghan? I mean, it just trying you know, in terms of like, what role would you then fill when you're sort of one to one with him? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, this particular officer was a um, a veteran of the Mujahideen when the the there was a Russian occupation. Um, between 79 and 89 and um he had fought against the russians for 10 years so he was a battle hardened um extremely kind of capable guy and he had a group of something like as i said 120 soldiers who were totally new had almost no training no sort of sense of um even a you know sense of being in the army as being necessarily being a good thing they would kind of just found themselves there and there was no sort of team ethos. So really, I think my role for him was to try to listen, to try to bounce ideas, try mm. to support. And often it was a case of the British Army sort of plugging the gaps where things were going wrong in the Afghan supply chain, whether it was through um, negligence or incompetence or whatever it was. There were things, for example, things that happened where one of their soldiers just decided to drive off with a couple of fuel trucks and sell them in the local market um you know <laughs> many many thousands of liters of fuel. so you know things like that were going on so the, the british and american soldiers were also with the americans as well were there to try to help stop things like that happening and try to put things in structures into place now i think the the, the way that i got on well with this particular um, officer was tried to just build a rapport um I learned the language as much as possible I had, I had an interpreter he spoke Pashtun and Dari actually he was a Pashtun which is from the south part of Afghanistan and um he uh I think he appreciated it the fact that I learned the language and would spend time with him so to me it was about building connection it was about trying to establish a sense of rapport and trustworthiness that he if he asked for a favor from the Brits as it were that I would do my best to help him. I couldn't always deliver it, but I would be honest with him. I know I would um, try to support what what needs to go on. Okay, and so and so you'd you spent some time with him, and then and then you'd mentioned this sort of um, I'm not sure what the term is, the squadron or the the 50 guys that you were in a sense destined to lead. I mean, yeah, that's right. So what is the term? Sorry, what what were they called? It's a troop. A troop. So. So what? Yeah. So then, so then you moved over to essentially doing more um, of the logistics stuff on the ground with them. Correct. Yeah, I took over my troop halfway through the operational tour. Um, for whatever reason, my predecessor was moving on to something else, and um, it actually worked out very well for me because I, by this point, been out on the ground in Helmand Province for long periods, and um, which was really helpful because it meant that when I deployed with my troop and it was kind of a troop plus other attachments bolted on to lead these convoys of between 20 and 100 vehicles out and around in the desert um and so just just describe that in some like what so for someone who doesn't have any 
image of this, and maybe it was a while ago for some of our students. So yeah. a convoy from A to B in Afghanistan at that time, like what is that? Yeah. What is that? So imagine, oh, well, so we were based at Camp Bastion, which was a, a massive British camp. It grew to be a, a lot larger than it was at that time, but it's got an airfield there. There was this um, Afghan camp that was sort of just bolted onto the side of it. And from there, it was a hub. You would have to distribute whatever supplies were needed to get out to all the sort of forward operating bases and outposts all around the Helm province. Um, rough sort of order of magnitude. I mean, it's not that big. It's probably from Helm, sort of Camp Bastion sort of in the centre. It's probably between 50 and 100 miles to the north and then 50 to 100 miles to the south. But bearing in mind, there's really only two roads, one that goes east-west, and that it's a fairly narrow strip, um, Helmand province. And then there's a road which goes north-south, but you kind of can't really go on that road. Well, at that time, you couldn't um, due to the threat of, sort of roadside bombs, which are IEDs, improvised explosive devices. Um, so you're basically driving through the desert wherever you go. And the desert varies hugely from in the hot, in the heat, summer, it is flat, hard pan, packed sand, but as a result, extremely dusty. So as if you're in a, any vehicle, whether it's a small sort of Jeep type vehicle, like a Land Rover or a big truck with fuel on it or ammunition or food or supplies, a kind of or with a big ISO container on the back with whatever kit was in, you would see a huge plume of smoke from the vehicle in front. Smoke, sorry, dust. It's just this dust kicking up from all the, the, the tires. And so your sort of dust signature for any one vehicle would be massive. And if you've got, you know, a group of 10 vehicles, then, you know, you've got this huge sort of um, distance between the vehicles. You can't sort of drive so close to the one in front because you might just crash into them. Um, and so if you've got 100 vehicles, you're stretched out over something like 10 kilometers in, in the summer when it's really dusty. But then conversely, in the wind, and it's also extremely hot, sorry, in the summer, you know, 40, 50 degrees, extremely hot, sometimes and dry and extremely dusty and then and then cold at night but in the winter you'd then this whole desert would then effectively turn to a bog where you'd get this heavy rain and that what was hard sand then turns into like really thick sort of two foot deep sort of squelchy mud which is almost impassable by most vehicles. And so you'd then in, in those conditions, then it's a totally different story because vehicles are getting stuck all the time and maintaining momentum as a convoy of a hundred vehicles, where you've got every third vehicle is get either breaking down or getting stuck and you're trying to have to pull them out. But there's this concept of as a convoy going through a, an area of high enemy threat, there's a threat of roadside bombs. There's a threat of indirect fire like rockets. There's a threat of ambush from you know, direct fire rifles. And uh, depending on where you are, the threat varies. But if you are driving through a more congested area, then the threat is a lot higher from things like roadside bombs because they know that you're likely to channel through that area. And so in that case, you travel almost entirely on the proven route. You'd have a route proving vehicle at the front looking out and 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 a force of force protection troops trying to find these ieds and then everyone follows in the tracks of the vehicle in front and i'll come on to that because i think this idea of following a proven route is really important 
but it's also knowing when to deviate from a proven route is, is, a, is a concept that I think applies not just to doing convoys, but actually, you know, more broadly to what it's like to work with people. It's kind of, you need to know when to follow what's going on in front of you, but at, at times know when to actually go, well, we're going to go a different way here. So, so that, I mean, that's basically the, the, the picture of what, what, your troop was to do no i mean you so but you didn't you didn't know these guys so you took over 50 guys right yeah and like yeah, I guess and imagine in, it in an ideal world you would have gotten to know them in the uk but you didn't have to you, just, sort of, you just landed there and you're the boss kind of thing well you, you are the boss uh you that's true um you're put into that situation of having uh i think i had 40 guys in my troop but when we deployed an operation sometimes i would get groups from the rest of the squadron bolted into my group to, to, to go out on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, but I was really lucky. I had a, a, a staff sergeant called Mac. I'm still in touch with Mac. Mac um, was a, a veteran. He'd served some like 18 years in the army. He was a tough, no nonsense um, northerner, Man City fan who had a huge amount of experience, both at the practical element of vehicles and doing what needed to be done in terms of the logistics supplies but was also a fantastic um leader himself and the troop readily um followed him um so actually to me part of my role was learning how to a build connection with him and want to empower his leadership within the troop um, but also bridging um that relationship with the other leaders in the troop as well because he would have a a troops sergeant actually two troop sergeants and then corporals who had corporals typically sort of six to ten years experience or more and sergeants maybe 10 to 12 years experience so really experienced team so although i took over a team of guys that i didn't know and never met there was a team of leaders within the group that i needed to get to know thing one and then thing two you know figure out how to get the most out of their leadership Mm. so they all had a section of troops in the the example of the corporals that that eight to ten guys that they were in charge of and uh, so my role was really to well i saw my leadership role as learning how to get the most out of them and getting them to trust me because as a new person into the troop i think that that sort of sense of trust and confidence that you need to to give them is is the hardest thing because you are inexperienced in a way i mean i think that's to my point earlier of having been around on that operational tour but in a different context was super helpful because it meant that i did know what i was talking about a bit when it came to what we do when we go out of the gate and to leading things co- these convoys I had some experience to lean on um but actually that as i mentioned that the, the sort of relationship with your staff sergeant is you know is absolutely key and i i was lucky in, in a way because i had a, a fantastic staff sergeant not not all not all are as good as mac but i don't i don't think and in fact, one thing that I think did earn me trust with hindsight in one of the early weeks, I was told I was leading a convoy coming up in a, in a couple of days or something. And I was then told that I would have to take my troop out with a different staff sergeant. 
because there was someone who needed to get some experience or something. And I, I sort of stood my ground and said, well, not this time kind of thing. <laughs> this is a, my first time out on the ground with my troop. And, um, you know, it's the first time that I would have an opportunity to build that relationship in a operational sense. So I was, I was stood my ground on that and said no. And, and, um, and I think that was really, really important to our relationship because it meant, you know, I, I'd obviously at this point I'd built up a, a relationship with him, a rapport with him, which was, which was working well. And I recognized that he was, you know, central to that group. And if, if he'd have suddenly been taken out for some reason, then I think that could have been detrimental. So it definitely helped to build the trust. And, you know, and then we, from there throughout the operational tour, um, I, that team, I think worked really, really well. And um, I think, like with that, with that structure below you and you're trying to sort of uh, gain rapport and trust with that structure, I mean, what sort of leadership, I mean, how much can you impart then on the people who are below them? Like, is it, is it one big team or are you just leading those leaders below you? Or, I mean, what effect can you have on the, on the culture of the whole troop as a whole? You affect it massively. I think the as a leader, I think you are, in some ways you, you are you could be seen as a um you could be seen as a figurehead um but actually the your uh, overall personality comes through so i think as a leader it's really important to be i think the custodian of hope i think if um leaders become cynical or pessimistic then that filters down just it could be as simple as your body language your just your confidence if you're able to sometimes act confident even when you don't really feel it that matters i think sometimes it's that, that sort of perception of someone being confident really really helps and that's coupled of course i think with you know humility if you can couple that confidence with a bit of humility so you're listening to others you're there to sort of try to encourage other people and treat them well listening to them um, putting other people first and you know the, as I, I said to you before um ads you know leaders eat last is a good classic example from sandhurst if people think and believe that you are genuinely trying interested in them and generally trying to benefit them in whatever your role is then that goes a huge huge way and so i do think you can you can affect the the morale of the team by your behavior by what you do and say it might not be for you know huge chunks of the working day or the working week that you actually have interactions with them on an individual basis but here and there whether it's when you're eating together where you're just milling around the vehicles getting ready or whatever whatever you're doing just by being positive by having a bit of banter with them where where you can by treating them well i think that can uh, that can really really help to reinforce because something, something you've mentioned is like, I mean, some of the input that then you can get from them, like if they have ideas or if they want to, if they can see something on the ground. Absolutely. Yeah, be- absolutely. One of the things that we, we did, um, or I instigated with my troop, was at the end of any bit of work, whether it was a, a convoy out on the ground or whatever we were doing, we would have just a, a quick debrief at the end. And my sort of general... Um, sort of 
philosophy was to try to get the ideas from from the drivers from the guys on the ground the guys and girls who were doing the tasks and driving the vehicles and yes i was in the vehicles as well of course but one of the things that came out of that as i think you were alluding to was for example we, we would have all the vehicles would be labeled um so you could tell obviously one from another you got say 50 big trucks that all look very very similar um you want to be able to identify one from the other and the way they had been working is these stickers sort of laminated a4 sheet with the name and number of that vehicle would be slapped onto the front of the vehicle then one of the one of the young soldiers has had a simple idea which was can we stick one of those stickers on the back of the lorry as well so that if you're behind a vehicle you can tell what vehicle that is and it's a pretty obvious point but it hadn't been picked up and it was a fantastic idea we did that and it def helped to keep the team kind of cohesive as you were out on the ground because you've got radios you're trying to keep in touch with the whole troop as you're going through and simply being able to identify which vehicles were which it was a, it was a huge thing and and so i think my theory on that was just to try to get people to feel that no idea is you know too little hmm. any little improvement can help yeah, and it makes and, people feel um, valued as well, I guess. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think... Um... <laughs> so just, I mean, just on a, on a general note, I mean, you did lots of other things, of course, but I mean, just on a general note, I mean, you must have seen, like, through Sandhurst, through all of your training, through your different tours, you did multiple mm -hmm. tours, and I mean, you must have seen a lot of, like, a, a wide range of leaders and leadership styles. Like, was there any, like, would you say that there was a typical style or one better or i mean what what would you say was the overarching style i don't know yeah i think i think one of the things that you have to learn to do as a as a, as a young leader and so for your listeners that whatever, whatever their background is it, it's about learning to be kind of comfortable in your own skin and figuring out what your leadership style is and there are lots of different ones i think in the military, there might be a, a perception that it's a certain type of uh, gruff, kind of shouty kind of leader. And, that, and you know, those people definitely are there and they do exist. And especially at Santa's, there's a lot of that. And to me, I think that it's very much sort of situation dependent um, and personality dependent. Um, I, I met lots of you know, confident leaders who were quite imposing in their sort of leadership style. And I met some of the best officers that I met were, were quiet, quite reserved, introverted perhaps. But when they spoke, people really listened. And they still had a sense of kind of gravitas about the way they did things. So I, I don't think there's any one style uh, I think that certain situations mean that a certain leadership style needs to come to the fore. Um, and uh, and that, that can mean, in the military, it can mean needing to be very direct with people. And that's absolutely right and proper. But in other situations, a uh, sort of a quiet and you know more reflective type of leader can be more effective. And sometimes it's, it's doing both. You, sometimes you're you're you know quite reflective other times you need to adapt your leadership style depending on your on the situation um and um and sometimes that might take you out of your comfort zone i guess massively yeah so i think 
me as a leader, I think I I am more quiet by personality. Uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm not sort of massively introverted, but I'm not sort of hugely extroverted either. I'm sort of probably somewhere in the middle. Um, so at times when I needed to really um, assert myself, I think, or I project myself into a certain situation, um, I think that I did that. Yeah, that would have been me on my tiptoes, as it were, and really, you know, having to feel uncomfortable, but trying to do it in a way that, that gave confidence. And one of the things I can remember, one of the stories that one of the guys told to me after the operational tour was something that had happened to us out on the ground where we'd got into a certain situation and a decision had to be made on the radio and a lot going on. And, and I can think of other stories from other officers who were in similar situations like this, but what happened in mine, I was just trying to establish the facts of what, what could we see as a, as a group, what was happening at the front of the column and what, you know, what was the situation? And I just asked a couple of simple questions or, okay, what, where are you? And what can you see? Something like that. And, you know, people were sort of talking on the radio, this, that, this and that was going on. And then I made a, uh, sort of a fairly quick, but I thought fairly straightforward decision as to where or what we should do as a group. And said that that's what we should do 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 this as a group because you have a sort of a force protection trooper are leading and finding the routes so we said okay let's go there uh carry on effectively um and but what was what the guy said to me which i found very encouraging afterwards was that the thing that really helped them at that time was the fact that i had been quite calm on the radio and i didn't think i was being calm i think i i probably was you know, going 10 per dozen under, under the surface trying to figure out what to do, but just trying to figure, figure out what, what the actual situation was. And so I think it's, it's sort of situation dependent and, um, you know, adapting your leadership style to that situation, I think is, is, is one of the things that in the army, you just have to learn pretty fast. Yeah. And I guess the more experience you have, then maybe you come across situations where you know what you should do, or you know what you've done in the past, or you learn from that. Definitely. Yeah. So it seems, so it seems it's important that everybody just, I guess, finds, finds their own style. And ultimately, especially when you're, when you're young, then like trying to get some experience. I mean, would you have any advice for our students just moving forward? Absolutely. I, I think um, I remember one course that I went on and a, and, a, and a distinguished officer came to speak to us. And one of the things that he said, which stuck with me, and I think this is hopefully for your students, really, really relevant. He just sort of said something along the lines of, it was an encouragement to have the courage of your convictions. And he sort of said something like, if you have a hunch or an inclination or some intuition about a certain situation, something that you think isn't right or something that you think should be done or shouldn't be done, whatever the thing is, he basically said, if you have that intuition, that thought, that idea, then act on it. Don't just put it to one side and think on oh, maybe later. He encouraged us as young officers to, to try it, to take risks, to do stuff. Because whatever situation you've come from, wherever you're from, whatever your background, whether you feel confident or not, whether you feel experienced or not, you have a certain 
experience which you can bring to bear in any situation and by being true to yourself by using your experience and your um, education and your what knowledge you do have and acting on that makes a difference and it can be sometimes just the littlest thing that you do as the example of one of the soldiers who suggested putting the labels on the back of the trucks the smallest little suggestions can change the dynamic in that team so i would i would my encouragement would be to to take risks to go for it to be optimistic uh, not to be overfaced by being the newest or the youngest or what you feel to be the least confident or the least experienced or if the other way around you you feel like you are the most confident or the most experienced in that case even more like have a go and um and 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 you know be true to yourself and and uh and i think that's that's a, one of the keys of leadership for me is having those courage convictions being yourself and and having a go perfect well listen andy thank you so much for sharing your insights and your experience with us and uh, i say i hope our students can uh, can learn something thank you so much andy it's a pleasure, pleasure. Really good to be with you, Ads. Anytime. Okay. A big thank you to Andrew there for sharing some of his experiences with us. It was really just a, a small part of his military career that we were talking about. But what really struck me was the, the amount of variety that we heard about in such a short amount of time. You know, from the one-to-one uh, mentoring of the Afghan officer, how he needed to build rapport, listen, um, learn their language quite literally, and then just contribute wherever and whenever possible. And contrast that with when he took control of his own troop, um, leaning initially leaning heavily on the sort of expertise and leadership of those who were already there established within that group. And then over time, being able to influence the culture of the group of being able to sort of stamp his own authority on things um and through that just making people feel comfortable that they could contribute and then the group benefiting from that contribution but just making people feel valued within the group i thought what was also really interesting was uh, when we talked about the different styles of leadership and we've touched upon this in the on the course um a number of times um, often talking about this old view of leadership and how people can be autocratic and you know this sort of big man outlook. And it's interesting that Andrew, he acknowledged that this it exists, but it's also necessary in a given time and place. And you see that sometimes, particularly when you see little snapshots of Sandhurst. But in given situations, direct leadership may be required. And this may also not be a style that is your uh, chosen style of leadership. And that's really interesting. You might need to, you might need to get out of your comfort zone. You might need to lead in a way that you're not that comfortable with sometimes because the situation demands it. But that's enough for me. I hope you've enjoyed this second episode of the Gresham's Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening.